0: Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases necessary. by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to 23 ABC, and this long-time running cartoon is coming to life. SpongeBob SquarePants will be hitting the stage in November in Broadway. Just when you think you've seen everything on Broadway, SpongeBob SquarePants takes things to a whole new level. And that's why it earned 12 well-deserved Tony nominations. One of a Kind Show is wowing audience. Original songs written by Steven Tyler, John Legend, uh, Cindy Lauper goes on and on and on. And this is one of the stars, Ethan Slater. <laughs> sounds like a lot of... Hoopla! It sounds like a lot of... Hoopla! Sounds like a... Hoopla! Hoopla! Sounds like a lot of hoopla to make over a little Krabby Patty, right? (laughs) Wrong! Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain! I can't hear you! Aye, aye, Captain! Oh. (laughs) You know what comes next. For many of us growing up, this scene was a familiar sight. We'd wake up on a Saturday morning with the sun peeking in through the window, then with our Batman or Powerpuff Girl pajamas on, we'd trek to the kitchen where we'd pour a delicious bowl of cocoa pebbles, turn on the TV, and sit down on the couch to be pulled into the world of the Nicktoon. Vibrant colors would dance across our eyes as we watched to see what trouble Rudy Tabuti would get in on the newest episode of Chalk Zone, or how CatDog would beat each other's throats this week. It was a glorious time to be a kid when being a kid was all we really had to be. However, even if you didn't grow up with Saturday morning cartoons in the late 90s to early 2000s, chances are still high that we still share a connection to one particular nautical creature, SpongeBob SquarePants. If anything, as the time passed, SpongeBob has become even more ingrained in society. He's everywhere, on backpacks, and clothing, in video games, movies, even in hip hop music. As of 2019, that bright yellow sponge is now a nearly $13 billion industry, which has been on the air since 1999 and shows no signs of slowing down. Looking at that in perspective, that is a remarkable run. Especially when considering that the year that Spongebob premiered, it was in the same lineup as shows like Rugrats, Cat Dog, Rocket Power, and the criminally underrated Kablam! While those shows proved profitable to Nickelodeon at the time, many of them fizzled out by the early to mid-2000s. But not Spongebob. And so, after conquering nearly every medium he could, the question began to rise of, what else can Spongebob do? The answer was one that no one exactly expected or really asked for. Spongebob would catch a bus, or at least try to, and take the trip to Broadway. Reaction to the announcement was mixed, to say the least, especially when considering that the subject of the show was a global intellectual property, or IP. Now, IP is a business term that if I tried to explain it at length, it's highly likely that all of our heads would explode. So let me try my best to make it simpler. In a nutshell, intellectual property refers to a creation that has legal protection against any unauthorized use, and can range from everything from the Shake Weight to SpongeBob. An example would be, little Stevie draws in a notebook on the playground, and he draws a character named Bubble Bert. Then. Frickin Louie from down the block sees it, and decides to draw his own Bubble Burt, and he tries to pass it off as his own. But jokes on Louie, because while he was busy slipping go-gurts and watching Blue's Clues reruns, Stevie read the entirety of the book on copyright, and was able to file his drawing as his own original creation that he owned the rights to. In essence, making him the owner of his own IP on Bubble Burt. Stevie raises his hand in class, but instead of telling on Louie to his teacher, an entire SWAT team breaks through the ceiling and takes a confused 5 year old Louie out of the room after an intense scuffle and applying a taser. Don't me bro! And thus, Stevie gets to continue drawing Bubble Bert and passing out his drawings. Take that Louie. Looking at it in retrospect, that might be an extreme example, but you get the point. Well-known IPs don't exactly have the best track record on Broadway, with shows like Spider-Man and American Psycho burning out quick. It seemed that no matter how much money would be thrown at these shows, they were always destined to be critically ripped apart and to close with a whimper. But when SpongeBob premiered, something remarkable happened. The show was a hit. Not just commercially, but also critically. Now, it wasn't a small task to bring SpongeBob to the stage, let alone to make it a success. And yet, while a lot of people know about the show itself, not many people know about the story that went into making it a reality. It's a story about an unlikely Steppenwolf director and a billion-dollar corporation who somehow worked together to make a big-budget musical that didn't sacrifice art in the process. After you all requested it and voted for it, It's time to learn more about the history and unexpected success of Spongebob Squarepants on Broadway. Chapter 1. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. The year is 2017 and the cast is putting the final touches on SpongeBob SquarePants the musical before opening at the Palace Theatre in New York City. It is here that we find director Tina Landau. Landau's career up to this point was defined by producing experimental indie vibe theater, often dealing with complex, isolated characters as they fought against their environment. With productions like William Cerroin's Time of Your Life and Tracy Lett's Superior Donuts Under Her Belt, not many could exactly see her at the helm of Spongebob Squarepants the musical. Even Landau never saw it as a possibility, turning down the pitch already once 10 years prior. She felt that there was no way to bring the show to the stage in a compelling and convincing way, and honestly, she wasn't the only one. It was a daunting and near-impossible task to bring a beloved animated character to life without coming off as campy or insulting. Now, a live action SpongeBob show wasn't a new concept. But what Nickelodeon had been working with up to this point wasn't exactly up to Broadway standards. The show SpongeBob Live at the Nick Hotel in Orlando proves to be a great example that while SpongeBob may look cute on the television, in reality, yeah, he wouldn't hesitate to stab somebody. Spongebob show creator Steven Hillenburg felt the same way as Landau. He was afraid that the show would end up focusing too much on spectacle and fluff, which went against everything that he felt Spongebob represented. With Viacom, the parent company of Nickelodeon, and a multi-billion dollar corporation involved, it could be assumed that no matter what the show was going to be, it would be staged so that they could capitalize on the Spongebob name once again. However, much to the surprise of Landau, her agent wrote back to her to let her know that Nickelodeon wasn't producing the show to be a cash grab. The only way the show would be greenlit to move to Broadway would be if it effectively brought something new to the SpongeBob name, and in turn would elevate the brand by using it as a vehicle to do something new and unexpected. Hillenberg was also adamant that he would only want the production to be done if they could find a way to capture the indie feel that he had had during his original three seasons as showrunner. It was in Hillenberg’s response that Landau soon knew why she had been asked to direct, and why she had to take the job. Landau began watching this series while also learning more about experimental animation and Dottieism, a form of art that became prominent during World War I, which evokes a feeling of nonsense and whimsy. Both of these art forms served as a key inspiration for the original show. This can be seen in the early episodes of SpongeBob, especially with scenes like this from DoodleBob, or this clip from the episode Life and Crime. Yeah, buns and ties. This lit Landau's creative mind ablaze, and she began deciphering what type of artistic combinations and variations she could bring to the table for the show. And it was in that moment that she began to become more excited about the possibilities that could come from the production. Going into this project, Landau couldn't imagine doing anything other than a Broadway show using the giant foam mascots that had become… popular? Is that the word? (laughs) Instead of doing that, she asked herself what she could create that would be believable and exciting to her. She drew inspiration from the original series, in which a huge part of its innate beauty is that it allows for creative freedom where there are no limitations on what can or can't be done. I mean, think about it, the show follows a dish sponge who's best friends with a starfish and a squirrel from Texas that wears a space suit and lives in a giant tree dome. A pretty far cry from Perry Mason. It also doesn't just stick to one traditional art form, but instead serves as a hybrid of numerous styles that create a beautiful collage of creativity. Using this as an inspiration, Landau knew that the Broadway show needed to combine art, performance, and music to create a new, vibrant universe. A universe that didn't require giant foam mascots, but instead human beings portraying the characters. In her mind, choosing to not conceal the actors would in turn help the audience to be more engaged with the show and give them characters that they could identify with. And while all of this sounded great, Nickelodeon still had to be convinced. Being a visual person, Landau created a presentation for the heads of the network, which perfectly encapsulated what she wanted the show to be. Landau is on record as saying she wanted a handmade, messy, splatter of paint, glue stick smeared, visual representation of Bikini Bottom and SpongeBob. They were sold. But while Landau now had a somewhat clearer vision of what the show would be, it would still take a lot of work to get it to Broadway. Chapter 2 A Sponge Out of Water. It probably goes without saying that the real world and a cartoon one play by different rules. In the real world, we're stuck having to obey the laws of physics, where no one can fly, our limbs can only stretch as far as our bodies allow, and safes falling on people, it typically results in death or at least serious injury. But this is part of what makes watching cartoons so much fun. There's no limitations on what's possible. In the land of the cartoon, it's entirely believable that a 4-inch sponge can be a fry cook for hundreds of anchovies using a hydrodynamic spatula with port and starboard attachments. However, this was the first obstacle that Landau and her newly appointed designer David Zinn had to overcome. How do you bring the fantastic absurdity of a 90s Nicktoon to the realm of reality? It was a daunting task, and the only way to conquer it was to make it smaller. Instead of focusing on finding the solution in one lump sum, Landau instead decided to take it piece by piece. The first year or so of the process was dedicated to defining a movement vocabulary to translate the logic that's abundant in the cartoons into a type of physics that our world operates by. The definition of this vocabulary came from determining how the characters of Bikini Bottom would move through their everyday lives, with the main focus being on how they walked. Roughly three years after she had received the email asking her to helm the project, and before they even had an idea of what the story for the show would be, Landau began holding workshops focusing on the visual and physical aspects of bringing SpongeBob to life. Various performers would gather into a rehearsal space where Landau would start the sessions with a simple message. She would say, we're going to make a lot of stuff, and no one owns anything. It's all going into a giant pile in the middle of the room, and we're going to pick out the best of the best. The room became a giant playground for the performers, in part because Landau wanted it to feel that way. She didn't want to limit or restrict anything, because in doing so, it would rob the production of the spirit of the original series, where everything has to be thrown at the wall, and after they run out of things to throw, pick up the kitchen sink. Landau's process of selecting what worked and what didn't work came from an unlikely place, but would ultimately play a large role in the success of the creation of the show. guys just the time, man. Hey, yeah? Yeah. Some yeah. Some For what? You. It's good stuff. The last one, the kind, man. What hit we, the last you guys like two to three days. How much is it? your price, make it disappear. (laughs) Miami Vice was a critically and commercially successful show in the 1980s that was known for its stylish presentation of Miami as a city of action, danger, and lots and lots of neon. Part of what helped with the show keeping this continuity in regards to location, casting, and scripts was due to a liaison who was in charge of determining what worked and what didn't. Their job was to walk up to things and either A, nod their head yes and say vice, or B, shake their heads no and say not vice. This was how Landau treated the early workshops, by pointing and deciding if something was vice or not Vice. By the end of the year, Landau and Zinn could tell that they were beginning to get a better hold on the feeling that the production needed to take. The show wasn't going to be an imitation of the cartoon, and instead was going to take place in its own universe, while still paying homage to the original series. The design of the characters would be scaled back and no foam suits would be used, besides the occasional ones like Larry the Lobster. With the feeling of the show established and having a source that thrives off as much macabre humor as SpongeBob does, Landau knew that she needed to bring on board a playwright who could channel that, and who better than Kyle Jarrow? Jarrow was no stranger to off-the-wall humor, with the first play of his playwriting career being Alex Timbers' 2004 "A Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology Pageant" as a part of Les Freres Kebouciere which is touched on in our bloody bloody Andrew Jackson video. Upon being approached for the production, Jarrow would have the same reaction that pretty much the rest of the cast, crew, and soon audiences would share. They're making Spongebob into a musical? One of the most important criteria that needed to be checked off the list for him was to make sure that the form matched the content. Before jumping on board, Jero had to be certain that a Broadway musical was the right way to tell that character's story. It only took three minutes of a pitch before he was sold. Around the same time, Landau also began the intimidating task of casting one of the most recognizable cartoon characters in modern history. The audition process would be simple. Numerous three-day workshops that focused on movement and creativity. An actor named Brian Norris had been auditioning for many projects in the city, when he decided to audition for Spongebob. The roles he was lined up for were serious, and the audition rooms were dark and brooding, with lots of whispering happening behind a large white table. When he found himself in the room for Spongebob, he could instantly tell that the feeling of the environment was different. It was warm, inviting, and above all else, fun. So fun, in fact, that Norris soon found himself sabotaging all of his other auditions to get into SpongeBob. This was the same feeling that Lily Cooper felt. She was blown away by the collaboration that happened in the auditions and the stress-free environment that had been created, which included her having to make up a karate dance on the spot. Meanwhile, All the way across the country, one of Cooper's classmates, a young theater student named Ethan Slater, had applied to be an apprentice at a theater company in Connecticut, where he had been cast as Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet. He soon received a phone call from a casting director, who told him that they actually had another project that they felt he would be perfect for. Sitting in his friend's dorm room, holding a Spongebob plushie, and looking at a Spongebob poster. Slater opened up his email to see something waiting for him, with the subject line, Untitled Tina Landau Book. In his class, he was currently reading her book Viewpoints, so instantly his heart began racing. When he opened the sides, he was met with a scene involving a character named Bubble Bert. Slater had been a lifelong fan of SpongeBob, and when he started reading the scene, he started to get the feeling that the scene sounded familiar to him. That's when he realized why he recognized it. The scene was from Dying for Pie, where Squidward and SpongeBob sit and watch the sunset while Squidward waits for SpongeBob to explode from a pie bomb. When Slater arrived for the three-day workshop, he knew that he didn't have a SpongeBob impression in his back pocket. So instead of trying to fake one, he did the whole thing in his own voice. And when the opportunity to do SpongeBob's laugh arose, he instead opted for a chuckle. Little did he know that it was exactly what Landau was looking for. She went up to Slater and said, Listen, I love what you're doing. Come back in and do the laugh. It's kind of important. And so the remainder of the two days was spent perfecting his voice and the laugh before he was ultimately offered the opportunity to play Spongebob. The show was beginning to take shape, and already it looked like Mr. Squarepants was in good hands. They had struck gold with their lead, and an acclaimed director was at the helm of the show, A creative genius was in charge of the design, and an immensely talented playwright had finally narrowed down what the main arc of the story needed to be. Jero knew that in order for the play to work, he couldn't turn one of the storylines from the original cartoon into the basis for the show. Episodes of Spongebob typically only run 11 minutes, and the main conflicts wouldn't lend themselves to a two-hour narrative. If they were going to turn Spongebob into a full-length stage show, they were going to need a threat. A huge threat, a giant threat, an Avengers level threat. It was going to need to be SpongeBob at the end of the world. Chapter three, in unlikely hero. Yes, of course it's SpongeBob, you silly. Kyle Jarrell loved to describe the book or script for the musical as our town meets Armageddon meets SpongeBob. Over the course of the show, Bikini Bottom is threatened by impending doom from a foreboding volcano named Mount Humongous. With the city desperate for a way to save themselves, Plankton and Karen craft a plan to take advantage of this fear by convincing the citizens of Bikini Bottom to enter a escape pod. Unknown to the citizens, the escape pod is actually a device that will hypnotize them into liking the chum bucket. SpongeBob won't buy it though. And with the help of Patrick and Sandy, the three decide to scale the volcano to stop it from erupting by using a eruptor interrupter. How this hasn't been an actual SpongeBob episode yet is beyond me. With the book beginning to take shape, Landau then had to figure out how to approach the music you're going to do a musical, you want different vignettes into different emotions. just a simple All I want is the simple I love. One of the things that makes the original series so endearing are the variations between the citizens of Bikini Bottom. No one creature is like the next. It was from this variation that Landau found her inspiration for her unorthodox approach to the music. Whereas most shows depend on one or two composers for the entire run of the show, Landau decided to rely on approximately 15. Jero and Landau went through the script, outlining and song spotting, which is where they would determine where the songs would be, which character they would be for, and what the songs would need to accomplish. After they had the songs spotlighted, they then tried to figure out who would be perfect to write them. An executive in music at Nickelodeon named Doug Cohn had been responsible in securing acts for many shows, including the Kids' Choice Awards. With a position like that, he proved to play an instrumental role in setting up the meetings with the potential artists that Lando and Jero had lined up. Remarkably, out of all the artists that they had approached, nearly 98% of the artists said yes. Who said no? I, I don't know. Probably Bono. That guy. This led to a star-studded soundtrack, including songs from John Legend, Panic at the Disco, Cyndi Lauper, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, The Flaming Lips, Lady Antebellum, and the late, great David Bowie, just to name a few. With all that star power and songs coming from multiple avenues, it meant that they would need someone even more capable with music to help with the actual organization and tweaking of the songs that would inevitably be happening in the rehearsal room. To solve this problem, the production brought on Pulitzer Prize-winning composer and lyricist Tom Kitt, most notably from Next Normal on board to serve as a musical supervisor. Many have gone on record saying that without Tom Kitt, there was no way that the idea would have worked. Kit was able to interface with the original artists by running all potential changes by them, and in turn, made sure that they felt that they were safe and taken care of in the back and forth artistic process that took place during the rehearsals. Alright, it's 7-17 and Spongebob the Musical is the new stage production based on the popular cartoon. So the show's first ever performance will take place tonight. Come 2016, the show was finally ready for its first test audience. It would open at the Oriental Theater in Chicago on June 19th, 2016. When it comes to theater, Chicago has one of the smartest crowds in the world. This was a critical moment. They had to know if the show was able to appeal not only to kids, Also, to adults. When the curtain fell on the first night, the cast and crew waited on pins and needles to see what the reception would be. They all had experienced skepticism when signing on for the show, and they were sure that the theater-going audience felt the same way when deciding whether or not to go see it. The question was, would they be able to win them over? The answer was either a yes or a it's almost there. The Chicago production received rave reviews with numerous reviewers praising the cast, music, book, and design. Perhaps the most impactful review came from Dean Richards of WGN TV, stating that The story is multi layered for kids and adults. It all adds up to one of the most fun, well produced, and best acted shows Chicago has seen in a long time. In total, the production had to wait a year and a half before finally securing a theater on Broadway. But, now having a theater secured, Landau knew that it was time to start editing after one of her directing friends watched the show and told her, everything is amazing and everything goes on for too long. Landau took this to heart and started trimming the show to make sure that it didn't linger on moments for too long. As a result, the show got tighter and funnier. Set and costume designer David Zinn was able to turn the prestigious Palace Theater in New York into the nautical world of Bikini Bottom, with a breathtaking design that welcomed the audience into the show. Much to the same vein as Alex Timbers in Bloody Bloody, Landau and Zinn wanted the audience to feel like they were a part of the show, as opposed to watching it through a box. Like every other aspect of the show, Zinn didn't want to do an imitation, and instead dedicated himself to creating a design that captured the essence of Bikini Bottom. When looking at the original cartoon, the city is made up of objects that have been dropped onto the ocean floor. Using this as inspiration, the kelp was made from pool noodles and hula hoops were used to make corals. It could have been so easy to spend the budget on expansive, lavish sets and props. But by Zinn deciding to take the inventive and practical approach, he also found himself finding a way to infuse the big budget, commercial behemoth of a show with the same indie feel that Landau and the original show were inspired by. Soon, it was time for the production to open on Broadway. The opening night cast consisted of Ethan Slater as SpongeBob, Lily Cooper as Sandy, Danny Skinner as Patrick Starr, Gavin Lee as Squidward Tentacles, Wesley Taylor as Plankton, Jailene Christine Lee Josie as Pearl, and Brian Ray Norris as Mr. Krabs. The Broadway production also was able to bring on board the original SpongeBob, Tom Kenny, to be the voice of the narrator over the course of the show. The show would open on Broadway at the Palace Theatre on December 4th, 2017. The crowds began to file in. Many, with their arms crossed, fully prepared to hate the train wreck that they were about to see. There wasn't one person in the theater over the age of 12 who wasn't skeptical at the idea of a SpongeBob SquarePants Broadway musical. As the show progressed, however, those same people found themselves starting to uncross their arms. They found themselves laughing, gasping, even crying, and eventually standing to applaud the show and the story that they had just witnessed. Once again, the show was able to defy expectations, and it became a critical and commercial hit on Broadway. By the time that the Tonys came around, the show was able to tie the producers and Hamilton for most nominations, ranking in 12, but somehow only winning one. That award went to David Zinn for best scenic design. The show had continued to run for 327 regular performances before ultimately closing on September 16th, 2018, due to a decline in ticket sales, with many kids going back to school, and mainly in part due to a renovation on the Palace Theater taking place. Plain and simple, the deck was stacked against SpongeBob SquarePants the musical from the very first email, and looking at other prominent IPs that have ran on Broadway, it was a safe bet to assume that it would crash and burn, and yet, it found a way to thrive. The question is, how? Chapter four, not just a simple sponge. Let's get one thing out of the way. We live in interesting times. I mean, have you seen TikTok? The world used to operate in a different way. People used to wake up, go to work, come home, eat dinner with the family, and then go to sleep. There was still a sense of privacy where people could disconnect from the world by closing the door to their house. But we now live in a world where we're all connected and where it's more difficult than ever to get away from that. Social media has made it to where no matter where we are, we can always see people's opinions, photos, and what's going on in the world, typically within seconds. And as we all grow up together through social media, it's almost as if SpongeBob was able to transcend television and instead it became something even more timeless and powerful, a meme. It's fascinating because even though we grew up with Rocco's modern life and the Rugrats, the only one that truly captures what we feel and relate to as we grow up is SpongeBob. He's relatable and timeless. This was one of the biggest reasons the show on Broadway was a hit. The team was able to craft a Spongebob story that hit on our childhood nostalgia, and reintroduced us to the type of Spongebob story that we really hadn't seen since the Spongebob SquarePants movie in 2004. A story where it was great for kids, but it also had themes and humor that we would only start to understand as we grew. Also, instead of shunning it they were able to capitalize on the meme culture that surrounded the series as well. When you have a minute, head over to the Twitter account for the SpongeBob SquarePants Broadway show. Much like the series, it is a hodgepodge of the random humor that we have come to expect from SpongeBob on the internet. The account is an example of social media marketing at its finest, where it wasn't dedicated to simply saying, be sure to get your tickets now but instead was dedicated to creating enjoyable content that people could like, share, and relate to. It became a destination that people needed to follow to see what they would say next. And what's more, they did it in a way where it felt natural, as opposed to... How do you do, fellow kids? What? The Twitter and social media presence helped the musical because it's like word of mouth advertising, but on crack. The reaction to the show began to spread through Twitter, and soon, much like with Spider-Man, public curiosity began to skyrocket. For a different reason this time, however. Instead of going to see if it was as big of a train wreck as people were making it out to be, people had to go to see if it was really as good as people were making it. And the answer is, it really was. I shared the same sentiments as the public did when I found out I was going to be doing a video on Spongebob Squarepants the musical, and was ready to do a lengthy What Went Wrong video on how the Broadway show completely tarnished the legacy of Spongebob, and how big budget IP shows had no place on Broadway. But then, after two hours of laughing my head off, tapping my foot to the music, and eventually crying when they break into Best Day Ever at the end. I was honestly shocked at how wrong I was. I was skeptical at the idea of Spongebob being portrayed by live actors, but after five minutes I found myself suspending my disbelief and fully embracing the actors as the characters that I had grown up with, and that's because there was a method to getting the audience to do this. In an interview with Plankton actor Wesley Taylor, he spoke about how all of the characters started with a strong impression of their characters from the television show to help with welcoming the audience into the world and to help them identify with who their characters were. Once the production carried on, they would slowly drop into their own voices and their own unique identities that they had crafted for all of their characters. This went hand in hand with what Landau was going for. She wanted it to be recognizable, but not an imitation. And this was the main reason SpongeBob translated so well to the stage the show had a strong creative lead in Tina Landau. From the beginning, Landau knew that she was the captain at the helm of the ship, but also knew that if she wanted the show to be a success, the key was in collaboration and respect for the property that she was responsible for. In a sense, SpongeBob SquarePants the musical is the anti-Spider-Man turn off the dark. Landau wasn't there to redefine the SpongeBob mythos but rather to take it to new heights. And again, unlike Tamor, Landau knew that she couldn't do it by herself. It is so important to foster an environment where everyone knows that their opinions and ideas are valid. It's crucial to try everything and then choose what's vice and what's not vice. It's also worth noting that the show could have very easily fell victim to bringing in big names to compose the music. We all know it tends to happen. You'll be listening to a show recording by a prominent artist, and while the first few songs sound exactly like what the show needs to be, there's ultimately a spot where you can tell that they just gave up. But instead, by choosing to appeal to multiple artists, each song felt fresh and new. She also had a secret weapon in her arsenal, Tom Kett. Pitt was able to seamlessly translate the music from being ready for the radio to being ready for the stage, which is not an easy task to undertake. This proves that it is crucial to surround yourself with a capable, enthusiastic, and creative team. Chapter 5 The Conclusion. Was well, that a boring entitled? title? SpongeBob should not have worked as a live action musical. And yet, against all expectations, it did. The main reason for that success is that they stayed true to the character. And what the original show stood for in terms of experimentation, innovation, and heart could have very easily gone the cash grab route, where SpongeBob runs on stage in a foam costume and asks people if they'll help him get the Krabby Patty secret formula back from Plankton. But they instead defied conventional wisdom. They defied the easy route. And they knew that SpongeBob could teach lessons and connect people of all ages. It also proved that the most important aspect of making the show the best it can be is through collaboration and a rigorous trial and error period where creativity is allowed to be off the wall. We can't forget why we're drawn to theater in the first place. It offers an escape and a chance for us to tap into the inner child that we've stashed away under bills, taxes, and an unhealthy diet. Theater allows us the chance to play. And that's something that professionals working in the industry forget. They take their work too seriously. The point where they get too focused on reviews and awards that they forget to play and have fun creating something. The artistry gets suffocated by ego and capitalism. You have to realize that if you're lucky enough to be doing something like theater either as a career or even just as a hobby, you're in a powerful position where you are actually creating something. The only limitations come from your mind. If you want to be truly successful and happy with the work you're creating, You have to remember to play. This sense of play can trace itself back to the indie feel that was so important to the father of Spongebob, Steven Hillenburg, when he was creating the show in the late 90s. And I can be sure that wherever Hillenburg is watching, Landau and the entire cast and crew of Spongebob the Musical were sure to be giving him the best day ever. So call me back and tell me something new.